Hello, hello, y'all. Hey, it's me, Robin. And before we get into today's episode, I'm here to let you know that the club is open right now for new members. I'm going to take a couple minutes to fill you in on all that the club is offering right now. So if you know for sure you're not interested in joining the club, you're just going to want to hit the forward button a few times until you hear that baffling behavior show jingle. Okay, so the club is a virtual community for families of kids with vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. Many families in the club are parenting kids with a history of complex trauma, but definitely not all. Some are parenting kids with vulnerabilities that emerge from their neurotype or their sensory system or their giftedness or their neuroimmune disorder. And of course, some have no idea why their child's nervous system is so vulnerable. The primary purpose of the club and why I've created it the way that I have is connection and co-regulation. Because when I reflect back on my time as a therapist, it wasn't the skills and strategies and tools and techniques I taught parents that mattered the most. What mattered most was how connection and co-regulation strengthened their owl brain so that they could stay more regulated in the face of the chaos in their home. Then they could, number one, actually use the tools, and number two, start to feel a little bit better even before the tools started to work. The club can be accessed online both through your browser on your computer and through an app. And it's open, of course, 24-7. There's a very active forum, a huge video library, and multiple live events every month. Sometimes I teach a masterclass on a specific topic. Sometimes we come together for group coaching or just to ask questions and pick, pick my brain. We have two sessions every month called Connect and Co-Regulates, and those are designed to offer exactly that. There's no teaching, no coaching, just a place for you to be seen and heard by people who get it. Currently, we are also offering once a month bonus sessions for siblings of dysregulated kids. The club is intended to be kind of like a buffet. There is a ton in it, not because you're supposed to do everything in the club. You take what you need when you need it and come back when you're ready for more. If you could use a little extra support, consider joining us. You can read all about all the details over at robingobel.com slash the club. I'll put a link in the show notes And we're open today until the end of the day, Friday, May 3rd. All right, y'all, here's that episode you're waiting for. Attachment is one of those buzzwords that's beginning to get talked about a lot in the mental health world, in the parenting world, and thankfully, even in the education world. This is great, of course, of course. Recognizing the impact of attachment on development and behaviors is huge and helping us shift to that question that's being asked by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Oprah Winfrey in their new book, What Happened to You? But like most things that have become really popular buzzwords, a lot of important nuance is being lost when we talk about attachment and what it really is. In the month of June, 
I'll be releasing podcasts and blogs that bring us back to the beginning. This focus on attachment started last week in my interview with Bethany Saltman, episode 33. Bethany's the author of the part memoir, part biography on attachment scientist Mary Ainsworth. Today, in today's episode, we are going to explore the basics of attachment. If you keep coming back to this month-long series, we'll be exploring secure and insecure attachment, disorganized attachment, and we'll wrap up the month with a look at how attachment changes, including an interview with both my mentor, Bonnie Badnock, but Bonnie is more than just my mentor. Like she's a part of my team. She's been a part of what's, what's evolved into my own inner community, my own, she, she's become part of my safe haven, secure base experience. And, and we're going to talk about those words in today's podcast, but Bonnie's been a part of my own personal journey and kind of the shifts and changes in my own attachment neurobiology. So that should be a really fun, interesting interview that we'll put at the end of this series, looking at how attachment changes from more like a theoretical construct, but then we'll look at it from a more kind of practical space as well when I chat with Bonnie. I'm Robin Goebel, and welcome to the Parenting After Trauma podcast, where I take the science of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human and translate it for parents of kids who have experienced trauma. And like people are telling me, this podcast really applies to parents and humans, sort of regardless of whether they resonate with the idea of having experienced trauma. But that is my primary goal here is to take the science and translate it for parents of kids who have experienced trauma. I'm a psychotherapist with over 15 years of experience working with kids who have experienced trauma and their families. I'm also a self-diagnosed brain geek and relationship freak. I study the brain kind of obsessively and even teach the science of interpersonal neurobiology in a certificate program. So I started this podcast 34 episodes ago, although it's actually probably something like 37 episodes ago, because I've put a few bonus episodes in here and there and haven't numbered those. When I started this podcast all those episodes ago, with the primary purpose of getting you free and accessible support as fast as possible. So that means that this podcast isn't terribly fancy. I don't do a lot of editing. You'll probably hear cockadoodle do in the background or hens clucking about, especially today it's morning, which is prime time for cockadoodle doing and hen. I just laid an egg clucking. If you love this episode, add Parenting After Trauma to your favorite podcast episode and share it with your friends and colleagues. Be sure to head over to robingobel.com to discover all the free resources I have for you, including a free 45-minute masterclass on the three questions we should be asking ourselves when faced with challenging behavior in our kids. Is this child regulated, connected, feeling safe? 
you'll be able to find that 45 minute masterclass. Again, it's free at robingobel.com slash masterclass. While you're over on my website, poke around and discover all the other free resources available. And then definitely be sure to check out the club, a virtual community of connection, co-regulation, and of course, a little education for parents of kids impacted by trauma. A member of the club who also works supporting adoptive families recently wrote to me and said, I've been working with families adopting children with trauma for almost 10 years now. And the club is the best thing I've seen in this community to give families access to the practical tools that they need to parent their children, but even more importantly, to make them feel seen, loved, and supported by a community who truly understands their challenges and struggles. What you are building is nothing short of amazing. So that's like the best review ever and really sort of captures everything I was hoping to accomplish when I started the club just five short months ago. The club opens for new members approximately every three months. So snag a spot on the waiting list and you'll be the first to know when it opens. RobinGobel.com slash the club. And of course, if you love this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you left a review. Many, many thanks to Lisa, who said this over on iTunes. I'm incredibly thankful to have found Robin's podcasts and programs. Most trauma-informed training appropriately focuses on kids. I'm incredibly grateful to find a resource that equally, if not even more, honors, supports, and sees the adults involved in the healing process. Thank you, Robin. And thank you, Lisa. When you all leave reviews, it increases the chances that more people will find the podcast. And then we're just one step closer to everyone in the whole world understanding the neurobiology of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human. Attachment. All right, let's begin this deep dive into attachment. It can be hard sometimes to remember that when attachment theory first began to emerge, it wasn't exactly received with welcome arms and these declarations of, aha, this is genius. In fact, the psychology and mental health community were initially pretty skeptical and at times even overtly rejecting of the idea that a significant portion of the humans that we become is laid in the foundation of our experiences with our caregivers. John Bowlby's idea that children's development is impacted by how they are cared for was not exactly a popular one, but he persevered. And by now y'all love know that I love the characteristic of tenacity. Bulby offered to the world that each of us has this inborn system that we have ultimately labeled our attachment system. But more than that, it was Bulby who first suggested that a child's attachment to a caregiver ensures the child's physical and emotional survival. 
So let's pause and just think about that for a second. It was Bowlby who told us that connection's a biological imperative long before Stephen Porges gave us the science to back it up. Now, I'm very, of course, grateful for Steve Porges and the polyvagal theory and the relational neurosciences that are confirming what Bowlby so boldly and bravely offered up, which is that attachment to a caregiver ensures a child's physical survival. It's a biological imperative. We need it to survive. We need connection to survive, physically survive. So first and foremost, our attachment systems keep us alive. It's so easy to forget this one, but when I think about how attachment theory applies to my work in the office and in the club, when I'm teaching and in my personal life, Remembering that at its core, attachment is about physical survival helps me make sense of some sometimes pretty bizarre behavior, including y'all and myself. We'll talk about this even more as we explore insecure attachment and particularly disorganized attachment as this month goes on. Another thing that's often forgotten about or kind of minimized when thinking about attachment is that according to Bowlby, we are all born with a drive to maintain both connection to our caregivers and ultimately to other humans and our distance. That attachment theory isn't just about connection. Attachment theory is about distance from connection. Attachment theory is about both togetherness and autonomy. Ultimately, Bowlby came to identify these different drives and how they're expressed, labeling them safe haven, which are behaviors that keep us close, and secure base, which are behaviors that allow us to have autonomy, curiosity, and exploration. Interestingly, A strong, secure base, a strong desire for autonomy, curiosity, and exploration relies upon us first having a very strong, safe haven. Bowlby noticed that babies have three different attachment behaviors. So first, he talks about how babies have a drive to seek monitor and maintain proximity to their caregiver. So that's sort of um, lingo there, right? Seek, monitor, maintain proximity to their caregiver. What does that mean? Babies and children, and then ultimately humans have behaviors that are designed to keep us close to each other. So tiny little babies, well, first of all, they're completely adorable. They're literally crafted and created and designed in a way that pulls us towards them and wants us to keep them close, right? Babies cry, right? And cries, you know, kind of resonate and reverberate in our own nervous systems as as something that alerts us that there's a problem and then creates in us this drive to help solve that problem, right? So there, there are these behaviors that babies have to keep us close to them and drawn to them and wanting to move towards them. And then eventually, of course, babies develop and their motor skills are such that they can 
crawl and creep and walk and run toward their caregivers. We also now know from neuroscience that as babies are growing and developing, their brains begin to internalize their caregivers. They literally create patterns of neural firings in their own brain that represent their caregiver. So what this means and why I'm talking about this right now and seeking monitoring, monitoring and maintaining proximity to their caregiver is that as babies grow older and develop and then ultimately spend a little bit less time, right, in direct proximity with their caregiver, they can seek and maintain proximity to their caregiver in their minds because they have created an internal representation of this caregiver. They literally have like a neural net that represents their caregiver. And now they can seek and maintain proximity to their caregiver in their minds. I wanted to pause the episode real quick and read you this testimonial from one club member. This person writes in, the club has been life-changing for me. For me, feeling alone in the stress and the overwhelm of parenting a child with complex trauma has been traumatic. Here in the club, we are finding healing for ourselves by feeling seen and heard and validated, even though we may have come here for our children's healing. Oh, y'all, that is exactly what I'm trying to do in the club, to create a space that's for you that also brings healing to your kids. So the club's open for new members until April 28th. We'd love to have you. RobinGobel.com slash the club. All right, let's get back to the episode. The Second attachment behavior that Bowlby talked about is that babies use their attachment figure as their secure base. And so what that means is that once a baby's needs for proximity are met and their nervous systems are repeatedly soothed, their innate and inborn natural desire for learning and curiosity and exploration begins to bloom and open up. They begin to explore go out into the world and check things out, and then return back to their caregivers. This is an innate part of being human. Humans, when they're regulated and their their needs for safety and security are met, are designed to move out in the world, to seek and explore and to be curious. They need that. We need that for our brains to continue to grow and bloom and for us to have, you know, fulfilling, satisfying lives. Tiny, tiny babies do this using their, you know, caregivers as a secure base first with just their eyes, right. As they look around and explore because they don't have like the motor ability to literally move out and explore. But then of course, as they develop, you know, they're, they develop the opportunity to be able to actually crawl away from their caregiver and go and check things out and find that thing that's over in the corner of the room or, or their eyes land on their favorite toy, toy and they go toward it. 
right? A baby's secure base behaviors, these explore behaviors are supported by the fact that they know that their caregiver is there and available. And for tiny babies, because we don't leave babies alone without supervision and without caregivers because it's not safe for them. Tiny, tiny babies know that their caregiver is physically there and available and they use their eyes. They use their motor movements, even in their neck to kind of look over their shoulder and eventually, you know, to use their legs and arms to return to their caregiver. But as babies grow older and into toddlers and preschoolers and school-age children who are separated from their caregivers more and more and more and more, they have the internalization of their caregiver in their minds and in their nervous system. So their secure-based behaviors to explore are still supported by the fact that they know their caregiver is there, their meaning internalized into their own nervous system, which allows them to have the felt sense to know that their caregiver is out there in the world somewhere, right? Maybe they're at school and their caregiver is at home or at work, but this internalization of their caregiver allows them to lean into the trust that their caregiver is still there. And this opens up then their innate drive for exploration. Okay, and then Bulby's third attachment behavior that he identified was that babies flee to their caregiver when they're afraid. So when babies become overwhelmed and aroused, when they have a need that they can't meet themselves, whether it's like a physical need or an emotional need, you know, they need to be soothed. They turn back toward their attachment figure, back towards their safe haven in order to get that need met, in order to be soothed, in order to find co-regulation, in order for their big feelings to be met. And then these two systems work in harmony. The, The afraid, like kind of fight, flight, danger, danger system works in harmony with this safe haven, find safety, return back to the safe haven system. This creates physical safety and ultimately emotion regulation. So that's something to really pay attention to, that as babies become aroused, as they get more accelerator in their nervous system and potentially um, begin to feel dysregulated, they have a need to feel soothed and to have their emotional experience co-organized and co-regulated by a caregiver, that arousal, that increase in arousal, then it, it kind of kicks on their attachment system and sends them back toward their safe haven. Okay. So these two systems work together in order to help babies experience for, again, first of all, a physical safety, but ultimately this paves the way and lays the groundwork for what we eventually call emotion regulation. But then Bowlby took this all one step further and talked about how like as development unfolds and kids begin to experiment with these behaviors that keep people close, as well as behaviors that allow for their autonomy and curiosity and how to balance these relational opposites, kids begin to develop and internalize 
meaning they're creating neural networks around these ideas about themselves and about others and about the environment. So it's through the attachment experience and developing attachment and behaviors of safe haven and secure base that our kids begin to develop and internalize ideas about themselves, who they are, others, who they are in relationship to others, and their environment. I want you to just hold that thought for a minute, this idea of internalized ideas that emerge from the attachment experience. We're going to come back to those ideas, and we're going to repeatedly come back to them as we further explore um, secure attachment, insecure attachment, disorganized attachment. Okay, but before we go any further with that idea about the internalization, let's look over briefly at Mary Ainsworth. Mary Ainsworth, you heard Bethany Saltman talk about Mary Ainsworth in last week's podcast episode. And I highly recommend Bethany's book, which is largely memoir, as well as it becomes a biography of Mary Ainsworth. And I just love the care and attention and like reverence that that Bethany offers up to Mary Ainsworth, who is critically important in the history and development of attachment theory. So Mary Ainsworth, a brilliant scientist, took Bowlby's theories. And she really did the work that was needed in order for attachment to become a part of what's now our everyday language. So Ainsworth, through her dedication to science, attachment, parent-child pairs, and her brilliant and keen observation skills, learned that attachment systems actually are malleable. That means they can be shaped and changed. She taught us, and this is huge. I mean, this is what really lays the foundation for attachment theories applicability, both to clinical work and my work as a therapist who relies on attachment theory as kind of my primary theoretical orientation, as well as what this means even more, you know, more practically, more everyday than that, which is in our regular relationships, specifically our parenting relationships. So what Ainsworth discovered is that attachment is about a parent's nonverbal communication and interactions with their babies. Said another way, attachment is not about what parents do for their babies. It's how they do it. That becomes profound and helps us remember as both clinicians and parents, you know, whatever hat you're wearing as you're listening to this podcast is that we need to stay focused on listening to the story that's under the story. Do you remember how Anne Heffron and I talked about that? Like at the very, very beginning of this podcast, one of my first episodes, Anne and I talked about listening for the story under the story. And we have this 
six week workshop that maybe we'll do again this summer. I don't know. It's not what parents do for their babies. It's how they do it. So then Ainsworth works, Ainsworth worth, man, that's a kind of a tongue twister. Ainsworth's work (laughs) eventually brought to us what we now call the strange situation, which was a groundbreaking, simple and short laboratory experiment that still holds up today. Decades later, we still consider the strange situation to be kind of our bedrock that allows us to begin to classify an infant's attachment to their caregiver. It's so through Mary Ainsworth's work with the strange situation, as well as the continued work of the brilliant Mary Main, both of these Marys and all the amazing contributions that they've made, not just to attachment theory, but, but to humanity. We now have language that describes attachment behavior and it's language that you're likely familiar with, right? Like we have these classifications of secure attachment insecure, anxious, or, or ambivalent attachment, insecure, avoidant attachment, and, and eventually disorganized attachment, which was added through because of the work of Mary Main. We also now understand that we not only can categorize attachment based on secure and insecure, right? There's secure attachment, and then there's insecure, anxious, insecure, avoidant, insecure, disorganized. We can also categorize it based on organized and disorganized. And in the organized category is secure, avoidant, and anxious. Those are organized ways of being in relationship. And then in the disorganized category is disorganized. So you're going to have to keep coming back and listening to this podcast and, you know, checking out how this series evolves to learn more about secure versus insecure and then organized versus disorganized. These are all just such important topics that I'm going to give, you know, a podcast episode to each of these different topics. Otherwise I wouldn't be giving, doing podcast episodes. I'd be, I don't even know what you would call. I mean, we would, we, it would be like a three or four hour episode. That is not what I want to record. No, or is that what you want to listen to? So for now, let's just go back to Bowlby's idea. That attachment lays the foundation for a child's inner working model, those internalizations about both themselves, their caregiver, and the environment, the world around them. So Bowlby asserted, and you know, decades of attachment research now completely supports that a child's earliest and most repeated experiences in the attachment relationship shape their view of, well, basically everything. <laughs> Babies who would end up being classified as having secure attachment become kids who are confident in themselves, believe they have power and autonomy, believe that they are good people, even though sometimes they do things that are not good, and believe that generally speaking, other people are good too. So do you hear in that, like how attachment develops into the beliefs about themselves and other people in the world, right? So these beliefs ultimately become what you could think about as like our lens, these colored lenses even that we can never take off or even know that we're wearing in which we look at everything through. 
they impact how we see and experience everything. And if I only ever saw the world through green lenses, not only would I see everything tinted green, I wouldn't know really that I was seeing everything tinted green. It would just be how I was seeing things. And I wouldn't know that it was different than how other people saw things. But those green lenses would impact how I saw, experienced, and interpreted everything. So that's what our attachment inner working models do for us. They're like these lenses that we don't even know we have that impact how we see, interpret, and experience everything. So now neuroscience and memory science helps us understand that babies do in fact have memory. It's just that they have memory that we'll call implicit as opposed to explicit, meaning babies don't hold on to experiences and explicit memory with this like picture in their minds and this sense of like, oh, I remember that. But they do in fact have memory. They have memory inside their minds that help them predict what's going to happen next. It just doesn't have that sense that you and I have now that we make explicit memories that has this felt sense of, oh, I'm remembering something right now. So for example, and I use this example also in the trauma memory and behaviors video series. So if you haven't seen that um, and you want to understand a little bit more about memory, you might go check that out. It's at robingobel.com slash video series. But the example I give in that and that I'll offer up again here is that, you know, after having experienced this a couple of times, babies start to know when they're, that when their caregiver opens up the fridge and brings out one specific container, it means that they're going to get something to eat soon, right? And if they've had positive experiences with being nurtured and fed, they likely become physically excited about the prospect that they're going to get to eat again soon. Their digestive system begins working to prepare their body for food and digestion. They might move towards their caregiver with delight and anticipation, either either like physically, like they kind of toddle toward, or, you know, as they're strapped into a high chair, they get all excited and their limbs start really moving, right? So all of this happens because they have implicit memory about what that one container means is going to happen next. They certainly don't have this kind of felt sense of remembering or this thought of like, oh, yesterday when that container was brought out of the fridge, something yummy happened next. And when I get fed by mommy, I feel so loved and warmed and nurtured. And she looks at me with such warm eyes. I just can't wait for that to happen again. That isn't what happens for babies, but they have an implicit memory that helps them know and anticipate what's going to happen next. And so, of course, the same is true for attachment and relationships, that these repeated experiences of being seen and safe and soothed by their caregiver or not seen and safe and soothed by their caregiver creates implicit memories about themselves. Like I'm good and adored. My voice has power and helps me get what I need or implicit memory about their caregiver, which could sound something like I can trust grownups. They aren't perfect, but overall they help me get what I need. 
And then implicit memory about like the world and the environment that they live in, which sounds something like the world is mostly safe and predictable. So this is what Bowlby was talking about when he said that attachment leads to a baby's inner working model. It's these repeated experiences that lay the foundation for how babies experience themselves, other people, and the world. So like I mentioned at the beginning, June for me is Let's Explore Attachment Month. I'm going to be blogging and podcasting about attachment. We're going to look further at like, what is attachment? What's secure versus insecure? Why does that even matter, right? How do these different experiences and attachment develop? And then ultimately, of course, what everybody wants to know is how do we change it if it's not secure? So if you haven't already hit subscribe to this podcast, you're going to want to make sure that you do that now. There's going to be more than one episode a week. I got a lot to cover in one very short month. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to connect with me today and for caring about kids impacted by trauma. I am so, so, so grateful for you. If you're new here, definitely subscribe to this podcast in your podcast player and then head over to robingobel.com slash masterclass, where you can watch a free three-part video series on what behavior really is and how to change it. Please take a moment to share this podcast with your colleagues, friends, grandparents, teachers, everybody. The sooner the whole world understands the neurobiology of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human, the sooner our kids are going to live in a world that sees them for who they really are. Completely amazing sometimes, sometimes a lot struggling. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today. I will see you here next time. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids, but also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory 
so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash being with, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you could get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you could just head to my website Download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, ebooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now and I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.